This is the Recorded Conversations Podcast, the podcast dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in an authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Welcome back to Recorded Conversations. This is the first episode of 2024. I gotta tell you, this was a phenomenal conversation. Today's guest wishes to remain anonymous and will be referred to by his Twitter X handle, Wounded Sheepdog. My guest has been in a relationship for over 20 years, is a father, and has a lot of unique experiences to share with those who may be struggling in a sexless or sexually declining relationship. His tweets are inspirational, insightful, and most importantly, accountable. So if you're seeking motivation, I highly encourage you to follow him on Twitter at Wounded Sheepdog, spelt just like it sounds. Today's topic indulges the question, how to encourage conscious relationships without endorsing the gender war. Caution, this episode contains sexual topics. Sheepdog has been through an inspiring transformation and shares his background story and journey from emotionally retarded to emotionally intelligent. We discuss why the red pill agenda is a harmful mindset that encourages men to see women as objects, not people. We also discuss why porn can be degrading to our beliefs about sex and intimacy and how porn can negatively impact our expectations in the bedroom. We then talk about how we learned there was so much more to sex than the basic flat concept floated around by social, cultural, and media narratives. There's also a little chatter about why taking the orgasm out of the sex can lead to better sex and connection. Being goal-oriented is an attribute to the boardroom, but when it comes to the bedroom, being goal-oriented is no longer an attribute. Emotionally connected sex is the best sex you can have, bar none. Romance is important. Rituals are important. But this does not make you a simp or a cuck if you like to appreciate your lady or receive affection from your lady. Love isn't logical, nor does love aim to fit the mold of the red pill agenda. We discuss the importance of touch, which is every single person's love language, by the way. I talk about why it's important to see your spouse as a human being and not just some label or category or affiliation. What's important is to see each other as equal in value and worth. We must remember we're on the same team. We then grapple with the concept of ego and whether or not that is an important feature in the bedroom. My guest then highlights the trends of relationship orientations, such as the TradCon relationship, in which the demands and expectations for this type of relationship demean and objectify women. Then we talk more about how the red pill movement is really just an agenda of Agent Smith. Then we ask the question, must the man lead? But if he's unconscious, can he lead? What does it require for a man to lead? Sheepdog says patience and much more. We'll then take a deep dive into the controversial topic of infidelity and forgiveness. How do you take accountability for infidelity? What happens on Discovery Day? And how do you rebuild trust? Can you love again after an affair? 
Toward the end of the conversation, we then share our learning and teaching experiences in the realm of parenting. And specifically, how do you talk to your children about sexuality, intimacy, and how do you encourage their curiosity? This episode is filled with so much substance, nuance, and really is just two individual perspectives, compassionately considering one another in an authentic, connected dialogue. Mentioned in this podcast, Zuby, Andrew Tate, Fresh and Fit Podcast, The Red Pill Movement, Wife Worship, TradCon, Biblical Marriage, Obligatory Sex, Chump Lady, Adam Lane Smith, She Comes First by Ian Kerner, and Last a Dolphin. For more insight and inspiration, please be sure to follow today's guest on X, formerly Twitter, Forever Twitter. You can find him at Wounded Sheepdog. Listeners, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of my guest, Wounded Sheepdog. Enjoy the episode. in a, a race, a, a Red Bull um, race that oh. actually had no finish line. So you begin running and you, you have to outrun a car. Um, it You get a half an hour head start and you'll end up running for four, five, six hours, depending on how fast you go. So the faster you go, the further you'll go, but the further you go, the more tired you get. Wow. And so the only way to, and eventually when you get caught, you're done. Um, so it's last man standing. And wow. uh, I used to, I did that in Denmark, Netherlands, uh, where else did I race that? Ireland. Um, wow. So I, I would, yeah, I did, I did fairly well in that one. Um, for a lot of years, it's, it's kind of a different mentality that goes into a race like that because you don't know where the finish line is. Um, Jesus. The harder yeah. you go, the more you're going to hurt. <laughs> so it's it kind of, it's, uh, isn't is, that is a, a metaphor for life too? You don't know where the yeah. finish line is. Wow. Exactly. That's awesome. You go by Wounded Sheepdog on Twitter, and I came across you, I think, off of somebody else, some red pill oriented. I think it was like Ryan Stone or something. Maybe I saw you comment on, and I just really appreciated you had more of a a redirect and an encouragement, and you shared your own experience, which I think is so lacking in a lot of social conversations today is a lot of people don't want to cop to their own experience, except when it's bad. And most people don't want to share in any form of accountability what they've learned from their own experience. And what I saw you doing was, this was my experience. I was fucking up here. I figured it out. Now this is how we can do it. And we need more conversations in which we are encouraging the behavior you want rather than just spending so much time complaining about the behaviors and the actions and the attitudes we don't like. And so that's what really drew me into you just because, you know, there's not a lot of positivity right now out there, it seems like, or I guess maybe that depends on your algorithm, but I thought you were very encouraging. You were very positive and you were very vulnerable in sharing your own experience. And so I just thought we would have a great conversation about how to encourage conscious relationships without endorsing the gender wars. I know that you have had your own transformation in your own relationship 
So can we start there and talk about when you started coming into this awareness of what needed changes in your own relationship? My story is very, very long. We could probably spend three hours talking about it. So I'll, I'll try to hit you with Cole's notes and maybe if we do a future discussion, we can, we can get into more. To give you a little bit of background, I was an athlete. I was kind of the jock guy, the mouthpiece. Um, I came from a household where people, it was kind of a dog eat dog sort of environment, right? Like you, you, there was no vulnerability. I like to talk a lot about emotional IQ and emotional intelligence. And I grew up with zero exposure to any of that. That obviously followed me into adulthood. And so, you know, I went through school and I've always been an intelligent guy and hardworking and, you know, had all the right ingredients there, but no, no proper coaching or experience with, you know, emotional intelligence or emotional IQ. I didn't even know what the term was Mm -hmm. until probably uh, four or five years ago. So then I went through years of running and, you know, learned a lot about myself through that. And there's, there's a ton of growth that comes with a sport like that. So, so did all that. And again, I want to kind of preface this whole discussion too. I am not an academic in this field at all. Um, I have no formal training background experience. I have a lot of experience as well. I'm, I'm kind of, as, as I, as I say to folks, I learned on the tools. Um, that's kind of an oil field term that we use here. And, um, I, I didn't learn through books, I learned through hard life lessons. So fast forward that, so I met my my wife, my current wife, we've always been together. Uh, I met her, I was 17 years old. So wow. yeah, we, we can talk about all, all the So how long have you been together? 24 years. And I, I'm, I'm 42 now. So uh, she is, she's been, always has been the love of my life. She's a wonderful woman. You know, we, we met very young. She's 21. I was 17. And uh, um, ultimately, you know, I was a mature, immature boy, right? When I met her, um, I was just excited that I had a girlfriend and, you know, she went through university. So there was a lot of long distance type stuff for, for a number of years, just in the early beginnings. Um, she was my sugar mama because she was out working. She was already done college when we met. And that created a really awkward dynamic that I don't think we realized was awkward until many, many years later. And, and basically, you know, over time, our relationship eroded. I don't even know how to explain it. We had zero sex life. There was absolutely no intimacy whatsoever. I didn't even know what that was. I was off doing my thing with the boys and running and playing hockey and doing all the things guys do. She was basically a roommate. And um, we ended up having children. So we got together in 99, I guess. Our first date was Fight Club, which is kind of hilarious. So, you know, great again, lacking. Great movie. Yeah, great, great movie. Probably not a first date movie, but it was. Anyway, we had children. And uh, and then it was probably around 2019. It was early 2019. I sensed something wrong. I don't know why I sensed something was wrong, but I was out running with, with my little ones. And... Uh, and I just felt like, I was like, there's got to be more. Like, we're dead. Like, I, I literally have sex once a week for our three-minute high five. Thanks for that. Um, mm. It was, like, I can't even describe to you how pathetic it was. I, I, I would honestly tell you, like, I don't even know if I ever gave her an orgasm in, in 20, almost 20 years. 
at that point. Like it's, it's not even a, honestly, I was 38 years old. I didn't even know what, a, how, where the clitoris was. I, I know yeah. it sounds hilarious and stupid. No, but, no, it's very yeah. common. We, we very rarely know our bodies or the bodies of others, yeah. but I mean, I'm, I'm with yeah. you. Like, yeah, a lot of us were late yeah, in the so, game and understanding totally. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of, I, Basically, I'll, I'll skip the next step in the six months of discovery. It was basically grasping at straws for many, many months, trying to understand what was wrong with our relationship. I looked at everything. I was reading every book I could find, trying different things. I totally went red pill for a short period there, started trying to almost mistreating her, you know, in an attempt to be more masculine and, and command my woman and all the things that these red pill guys talk about. We even explored the uh, lifestyle community in the swinging. Mm. Um, I I don't want to go into that whole conversation because that's a deep, deep rabbit hole. But I would love to it at some other point. But that would be and, a really fun separate podcast, actually. So, well, totally. Yeah, I there. have a lot of a lot of thoughts on that one. But in that whole, I guess it was probably about a six month period of trying to understand what was wrong. Um, I was buying sex toys for her, everything, and. Uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, it came to light. Like I, I started to see a change in her behavior and things that I, I, I never actually saw before in, in, in how she was reacting to other men's attention. Um, and I began to start asking deeper and deeper questions and ultimately revealed she had had a number of affairs in the past. Mm. So somewhere we're, we're 24 years together, but somewhere between year 11 and 15, she had two affairs with two different men and both friends of mine, like the ultimate shock. And I knew, I knew at that point we had young children. I'm like, our marriage is either over or it's going to take a very long time to heal. But what I need is, 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 um, honestly, I trust is gone. It's completely right. vaporized. We're starting from scratch and I need to trust her. Every little truth she told me, and I learned every detail. I'm not yeah. going to get into those details right now, but it was painful. But I chose to hear all of it because it allowed me to rebuild the trust. In parallel with that, I realized I had a really big inadequacy in the bedroom. Why else would your wife cheat? There's something missing in the bedroom and outside the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's it all kind of fits together. Um, and it was through that whole experience I had to learn about vulnerability and attachment understanding you know how to cultivate desire in your wife and and it's been a process it didn't happen overnight i didn't just flip a switch and all of a sudden we were rock stars it there was a bit of a learning process there, um, there bringing any, the guard down in the bedroom were there any people that really inspired you to take a deeper look you said you started reading stuff and trying to learn about stuff was there anyone that stood out any psychology names or any speakers or anyone that really helped give you a sense of a deeper way to transform? Uh, not, not online. Um, we went to a psychologist uh, oh, wow. locally okay. and sh she was trained in, in attachment theory okay. and, you know, she's gave us all the books from the Gottman Institute. And oh, that's um, good. Yeah. one of the biggest books that we read and we read it together, we would read everything together. I was, I sort of drove the change though, in the relationship, my, my wife will be the first to tell you that um, she didn't even know where to start. And, and I think, again, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about infidelity, but I think there's a fundamental difference in male infidelity versus female infidelity. 
And I actually think that if the male is has been uh, has been the unfaithful one, it's probably a lot more difficult to recover from because it needs. I think the change needs to be led by the man. Mm, um, that's interesting. I'll I'll elaborate on that later, but I think it has to be led by the man. But in the case where you have male infidelity, you know the man is also the broken one in the relationship. So how does he lead when he's broken? It's kind of a mm. difficult square to circle or whatever you call that. But anyway, the point being, I was in the fortunate position, I guess, of being the betrayed one, but also being kind of a little more introspective and willing to work on things and, and sort of led ourselves out of that deep hole. Yeah. Um, So that's really interesting actually, because I have a similar experience in my marriage and I was the one that cheated in the first year of our marriage, actually, while he was deployed to Iraq and also became pregnant from that infidelity. And so we've grown from that. Like that was our first year of marriage. And we only got married because he was getting deployed, right? Like we had been committed for three years and we had talked about getting married and we didn't want to go through the BS that everybody goes through and we didn't want to deal with our family. Anyway, so that was our first year and I 100% believed he was going to divorce me and he came home and was like, I will give you all of my grace and we'll start over. And so similarly, it was me that stepped out and it really was just about sex. And I think what's interesting about that is I hated saying that to people, right? Like they're like, it's got to be more than that. And I was like, no, really, he was done for nine months. And there was no way for me to, I, you know, I didn't want to justify it. But when you say it's just sex, it seems so trivial. And what's interesting is I just heard someone talking about the differences in infidelity and why men and women step out versus in the 50s and 60s. I think her name is Lori Cox, and I believe she is some renowned sex therapist or sex expert. Anyway, what she had noticed was they had compiled 40 years of studies on divorces and they re-examined them and they found that in earlier time periods, 50s, 60s, 1950s and 60s, um, men would step out for sex because there were things that he couldn't ask his wife and the mother of his children to do. Women would step out because they needed affection and desire from someone else. Now, men step out because they're seeking the appreciation, affection, and desire. And women are stepping out to have more erotic sex. And not that's not for everybody, but that seems to be the general persuasion of how things have transformed. And I thought that was really interesting because that coincides with this idea that ideologies like feminism and progressivism have encouraged men to become more sensitive and emotional and vulnerable and, and almost in a way desire the more feminine interchanges within relationships. And it seems almost like now women are aversive to that and are seeking this more masculine, dominating, primitive, sexual, erotic type of experience. Have you noticed any of that or can you can you relate to any of that? Well, there's a there's a reason why Fifty Shades of Grey was so popular, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it it resonated, and I mean, I I didn't read the book. I was very close to 
because I, I again, this was sort of during that discovery period there. I was, going, I was going to read it to try to understand, like, what is it that women are looking for? Why is this, you know, is this such a popular phenomenon here? And, and yeah, I mean, my wife would, would be the first one, again, to tell you that it was about the attention. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in retrospect, she looks back now after everything we've learned and and she'll tell you that it was actually terrible sex. Both of, of her affair partners were big guys. I'm, I mean, I, I'm not huge. I'm 5'10", 175 pounds. I'm not a, a big guy. I'm not small either, but, um, but they were big dudes. One of them, I think, was like 6'6". Six, six. And, you know, that immediately, of course, knowing the names and the guys, um, I was immediately feeling inadequate. Mm-hmm. you know, on D-Day, as they call it, Discovery Day. Mm-hmm. And and that's not something I can change, right? I can't change my height. I can get as fit and buff as I want. Um, but that's not, that, that's only one small piece of, of the entire puzzle. I, I needed to change what's going on up, in, up top, right? And ultimately, what we discovered over the next number of years, we read all kinds of books. Um, the, the best book, I swear to God, it should be taught in schools. If if I was in charge, we would all be reading it is Women's Anatomy of Arousal hmm. um, by Dr. Sherry Winston. She gets into the psychology of women in the bedroom um, in a way that I, I think everyone needs to understand. I don't think women even completely understand <laughs> their potential. She talks just uh, about the fact that women are hardwired for arousal and sex. Like that, that just, if you look at, even the physical placement of where you could, you could look at a man and say his penis is, is, is sensitive. That's for procreation, all that. Well, the clitoris is not really related to procreation. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah. I'm trying to find a good way to say the pleasure Um, point. (laughs) Yeah. So what's it for? Why, why are women and women are hardwired in, in a way that, like I said, I can't, I, I'm almost jealous some days of the types of orgasms my wife can have now. Um, because I can't even, I, I feel like I've hurt her. Some I look at, I'm like, Oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> and it, and that's not a, it's not a humble brag or anything like that. I'm just, it, you know, I don't think men even understand what women are capable or even women understand what they're capable Agreed. of. I wouldn't Agreed. have believed it till I saw it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess, I don't, I don't know. I, I sort of strayed off the initial point here, but, um, yeah, I think I think I, I just think there's a big blind spot in society. I think porn's big problem yeah. with a lot of that. I, I don't think sex ed's very good um, in schools. I think it's completely inadequate. And so people go to porn for their pointers. And I, I can't I can't even begin to describe how awful I think that is in terms of a, an educational tool. Yeah, um, I for agree. anybody. I think I agree. And I hate I don't I used to be on that train of not condoning it, but not condemning it because it was like, but that's all there is right now. I mean, what, let's be honest. That's all there is right now. But it's like, if we keep saying that nobody's going to be curious or interested enough to create something different, you know? And so we're almost perpetuating that, that thing that is, is creating so many of the problems. And I mean, I've had, I've had advocates of porn on my show before, right? I had Dr. David Lay on my show and he, you know, a strong advocate of porn, ethical porn. But I think even endorsing ethical porn to a degree is still endorsing, you know, very unrealistic expectations. 
for people. And mm-hmm. we we do need a remedy in trying to cultivate greater awareness towards us all learning together or individually. And then what that looks like, that it's not, it doesn't go to the the perverse and the deranged, but you know what? I don't know what to do with that. You know, it's like, so all we can really do is just advocate against using porn. And I think just endorsing more communication and really intimate, vulnerable conversations with your partner rather than I think we get too caught up in collectivizing what should be done rather than we're talking about two individual humans and how do we encourage them to cultivate the conversations that bring them to this awakening and transformation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like my, my wife will probably listen to this podcast. Well, maybe not right away after it's done, but is that Mrs. Sheepdog? Is that your wife? Mrs. Sheepdog? She started. That is. Yeah, I just got so, a follow from her, so I got excited yeah, about yeah. that. Um, so I, it's kind of going back to that reading books together. I, I would sit in bed with her and read books, and uh, and then every time I read something, yeah, I'd read something cool, and I go, "Hey, check this out. That's totally us." And and so that that really started a little conversation, and then and then we I go back to reading, and she'd read her thing, and I focused a lot more on the bedroom than she did. Uh, obviously, um, she was reading more about, like I said, ha- attachment and 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 just bonding and, and that. I, I was a little bit more focused on the bedroom and how that related to everything. It was, like I said, a big area where I felt, you know, completely inadequate and and just a, a blind spot that I didn't know I had. Essentially, in fact, I think a lot of men have that blind spot. They just don't want to admit it. Which is, again, if you go into that whole red pill philosophy. You know, I, I think that's why these guys are so intimidated by experienced women, older women, body count, all those silly mm. things they preach about. They're looking for a young, vulnerable woman that's really got no other experience to compare them to. Right. Yeah. And and it's funny because a lot of guys won't admit it. They you, you talk to every I sit around. I have beers with guys all the time and every one of them is the best guy in bed. If you ask them, <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. Nobody, nobody wants any pointers or advice. So then I, I ask them something silly, like, well, okay, so what do you think about Yoni massage? And they'll be like, what's that? And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> you need to start Googling because I think you're missing the point. You know, they think that having an eight inch dong and, you know, all, all the, the silly stuff they see in porn, they think that's, that's, masculinity and that's what women really want and I I think a lot of women actually do believe they want that because they don't know different until they hear it and then they go hey wait a second yeah actually a massage really does sound nice yeah um and you know you saw my my tweet this morning about holding your hand um Um, yeah and I cannot ask to that my husband does do that and it's really little things or like putting his hands on my face and kissing me I'm like let's go let's go you know, but then also the social expectations that you can just real quick have sex in an elevator have so pissed me off for years, right? But I grew up thinking that's what sex was, right? You just, oh, you just have this passionate kiss and before you're not, you're ripping your clothes off and you know, have sex in the elevator in 30 seconds and, and, it, and it's so unrealistic. And when we decided 
that if we really wanted our sex to be good and connected and like spiritual, right? Because we were always hearing, oh, sex is so spiritual. And I'm like, what are you doing? I, I studied Tantra. So I wanted to get a greater, deeper understanding of how spiritual sex could be. But you have to take the orgasm out of it. And you have to take out like every concept you've drawn around sex and just be willing to delete it, right? Because you are two people with two separate bodies, with two separate erogenous zones, with two separate ways to turn each other on. And I think the goal of marriage and a long-term relationship and that romantic love is to every time have a great new physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, sexual experience, right? This interdimensional full experience with each other. And if we're so mechanical about it and we just think sex is all that we see on the screen, we're missing all of those dimensions of that connection. And we're robbing ourselves of true pleasure when we are so goal oriented. I'm going to come. I got to come. That's, that's the goal, right? And it it always feels good when I do it this way, but it's like, how many other ways could it feel good? The way sex has been depicted and taught to us has been so one dimensional and it, it robs all of us of the experience, which is probably why it's easy to convince yourself that sex can be meaningless or emotionless or it doesn't mean anything is because we've torn away all these dimensions and layers that make this experience so amazing. If you just had a moment to think about that, you'd realize you're robbing yourself of it and you'd want to do something about it rather than feeling ashamed about it and then just projecting and deflecting and lying to yourself for years. You know what I mean? For me, that's for us, that's what really helped us was we took the whole goal out of it. It wasn't, it was about the journey, not the destination. And we weren't in a hurry to get to the destination. And that's when your sex can last for hours and hours because you're not, it's not about the climax. It's about, you know, reproducing the climactic ascension and then doing it again. Do you know what I mean? Like we rob ourselves of this big, huge, abundant experience when we remain mechanical and physical and just goal oriented. Well, and, and that's why I think a hookup culture is just, it, it sounds, there was a time when I, I looked at that and thought that was glamorous and cool. Cause you got to remember, yeah. I've been, I've been with the same woman since I was 17. So I went through university with all my buddies, everybody's hooking up all over the place. And I, I could not partake and it, it looked like all kinds of fun and I wish I was part of it. Now looking at it, I mean, if I was single tomorrow for whatever reason, um, I could not imagine one night stands. It sounds like, like, I don't think you could, you can have a great experience with somebody without that emotional connection. And it's funny because I know, I know women who, who have higher body counts, whatever that may mean, but they basically will all tell you the best experience they ever had was when they felt emotionally connected. Mm-hmm. I actually will argue it's the same for men. The problem is men, like you think women don't understand necessarily what emotional connection feels like in the bedroom. Men have no idea how great it can be for them too, which is, which is why like my wife and I created, I think it was in hold me tight by Dr. Sue Johnson is a great book about attachment. Um, and, and in that book, she talks about rituals and having, having rituals of affection and 
for us, it could look very different depending on who you are. Um, everybody's going to have their preferences. But for us, it was that little time can, having young kids, that little time after they go to bed, before we go to bed, there's a little window there of maybe an hour, hour and a half that we had every night that we said, look, let's carve that out for ourselves. And, you know, shortly after D-Day, I would say for the first two years, we probably missed maybe two nights, um, maybe three, like not very many. We, it was like a must be in bed together in the bedroom. We could read books. We could watch a movie together. We watched the Mandalorian, you know, <laughs> together, you know, um, we would, I would pleasure her. She would pleasure me. Some nights we would just do a back tickle or a foot massage or anything, whatever we were in the mood for. Now it's, it's evolved to the point where we're much more comfortable. You know, this week there were a couple of nights where I was out in the garage a little too late um, working on stuff and I couldn't get in in time. And usually, you know, she missed a foot rub one night, but uh, you know, last night I was, I was fixing the door. There's a window issue with the door the door of the car and so I had the whole door ripped off and I got grease all over my hands and I managed to get it all put back together in time I'm like okay it was like 7 30 at night and I told her I said be ready because it's it's your night tonight honey and she's she's like really I didn't think you'd want to do that after sitting out in the cold doing that uh, you know that's I it's important you know yeah. we will often like like candles we have soft music going um the red pill guys would call me a simp or a cuck or yeah. something stupid for doing that but it creates an environment where we're both comfortable she needs to relax for sure more so than I do but I still like to relax too and it's it's become our little thing you know every night we have that if we want to I like to use I there's something I haven't tweeted it yet but I swear if I was going to write a book I would probably call it her night my night off night I say that to guys when we're having beers because it's it's a foreign concept to men if you say like, cause people think sex is intercourse, penis and vagina. That's it. Yeah. There's no other way because mm-hmm. that's what porn usually shows you. Yeah. And, and so I, I tell guys, I'm like, have you ever considered just making it about her for a night? Like just try it. And they, they look at me like an alien and believe you me, even my wife and I, we, we both thought it was weird at first. It's yeah. like, hold on. So I'm not going to get, I'm not involved. I'm just going to give her a massage and that's it. And now it's a very normal thing. Like I, I like, it, and it takes discipline for sure. You know, just kind of breaking out of that mental mold we had where we thought, well, s- sex equals intercourse. Yeah. It was a, it was a foreign concept. So I said, I say to guys like, have a night that's just about her, have a night that's about you, so have a night that might be about both of you and then have an off night. Like you don't have to do it every night. It's yeah. Some nights it's just a foot rub or a back tickle. And my wife, like you said, you like being touched on the face. She loves the back of her hairline touched. You know, I've given her little hand tickles and massages, you know, like it, anything. It doesn't really matter what it is, but create that little ritual and, and let it build from there. Well, in touch is so important, right? And I think my husband and I will notice too. We're like, wait, we haven't even touched today yet. Yesterday we all went grocery shopping and we were driving, we were halfway there and he goes, I haven't kissed you yet today. And I was like, yeah, what's up with that? You know, but it was a joke, but you don't realize how I, the one thing I appreciate about touch is, is any, anytime I connect with my husband, it's like a battery charge. Like, I feel like I just plugged in and got a charge and there's science behind this, right? Like we are energetic beings and hugs can charge people. And that's why, 
you know, when mommy or daddy kisses your owie, it feels better, right? Because there is energy and healing behind touch. And we, we, we come to, I, I see so many people like, well, my love language is touch, but that's not my wife's love language or that's not my, and I'm like, that's a human love language. Like every single human being needs touch. And isn't that why we get married? Because this is the person I can touch all the time whenever I want and just be like, Hey, charge me and, and let's connect again and let's be this oneness again. And, and, and I noticed this in the red pill rhetoric. And I noticed this in, in so many different pockets of society is we've come to this place where we condemn really good things and we endorse really bad things. Like we should look at our spouses like they're predators and prey and oppressor and tyrant versus we're equal human beings. And so we say, just because I married you doesn't mean that I've consented for you to touch me or love me or do it. And and I think, what, what, what are we doing here? We're creating enemies within our relationships and we're creating distance and disconnection when we're all here crying out, like there's problems. I want remedies. Why are you giving the remedies to just create further distance and disconnection and division? And this is what I noticed most in the red pill rhetoric community is in their rhetoric is that I, I hear woe to those who call evil, good and good evil, just play, right? Because they're, they're accusing and they're condemning. And it's, it's all about us versus them, women versus men. And there's no growing encouragement towards wanting to have this oneness to expand my knowledge on what I know about my relationships to get rid of the expectations that I've had and just learn who this person is. We have all of this information coming in, confusing people, all these labels, all these categories. And it's to the point where we don't see our partner as a human being or the person we're dating as a human being. You know what I mean? Where you're this and this and this and this and this, and you're ultimately my enemy. And so, you know, the focus I would like to redirect towards is rather than listening to all the ways we can divide ourselves against each other, are we, are we even looking for all the ways that we're like one another, right? Like with this love language thing, we all need touch. Why are we attaching these genders to it and these categories to it to justify needing it? Like we're scared to have needs, right? Because if men have needs, you're simp, right? Oh, you, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> As, Sorry, that was I, a I, lot, I, wasn't there, it? <laughs> no, there's a, there's so much there. You're going to get me going on. a. will get the next half an hour now. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> it takes the pressure off me. <laughs> no, no, there's a lot there. But yeah, it, it's it's true. I think you communicate through your hands. Um, uh, there's uh, one of the, the folks I interact with quite a bit on on Twitter um, made a really interesting comment that the ha- hands, at least for a man, hands are one of their most intimate body parts. It's interesting. I think my wife really likes the fact that yesterday, again, I'm I'm outside, I'm ripping a door apart in the car, I'm covered in grease, I'm working with my hands, I'm chopping wood um, to get the wood stove going, and then I come in and I'm extremely delicate with my hands with her. You can be forceful too, but suddenly they have a different purpose. But I think you can say so much through them. And, and and actually, it's funny that you say that your husband hadn't kissed you. And, and it's one of those things you recognize now. That was one of the comments I probably made the most during that discovery period years ago. As I said to my wife, I'm like, you don't sit beside me on a bench. 
if we're sitting at a park and our kids are playing, you're sitting there and I'm sitting over here. Mm. Why aren't we ever sitting together? That That's how I knew something was wrong. I, I just, I couldn't really think, figure out why, what I was doing wrong. I, I was very immature in how I dealt with her. Um, and, and to be honest, she didn't trust me, right, in how I was going to touch her. I didn't touch her in a way that she was comfortable with. I would grab and grope and, you know, now I'll still touch her butt in the kitchen and, you know, when she's walking by it, but I'm not doing it in a, a really perverted way. It's an affectionate way. And sometimes she doesn't like it and she'll tell me, yeah, not right now. In a very delicate way, she'll just say that. And I go, oh, yeah, no taken. You know, it, it, there's appropriate places for it and inappropriate places yeah. for it. And, you know, when I touch her at night, I'm a talker. She's a little less of a talker. So she'll just kind of say, can you shush? Because I kind of just want to enjoy this. So then I... I kind of go, and we're like, we're very good now at, at telling each other what our wants and needs are in the bedroom. I have my fantasies that she um, brings to life for me and I do the same for her. Um, we occasionally stray, but we're quick to kind of just dial the other person in, in a nice way. Um, and don't really take it personally. She'll redirect me in the, in the moment. There's, you have to drop your ego, I think is the key Yeah. to all of that, right? Like e- ego is, is probably our biggest enemy. It's got it's important. I think evolutionary, you know, there's some some discussion about how important ego is in in evolution, and um, I think it has some importance. But like anything, there's a balance there. Yeah. And in the bedroom, I don't think there's a lot of room for ego at all. Well, okay. So actually, I don't know. Here's the thing. So I come from a a belief of that metaphor of the enemy, right? Whether you think it's the Satan. Or if you just think it's darkness, if you think it's the shadow, if you think it's the ego, there's the enemy. And that enemy, often referred to as the ego, I think to a degree we need. There's obviously a use for it. But it's can we get it integrated with authentic self and whatever other divine third thirdness that you observe, right? We have this this tripart brain. And maybe there's this tripart phenomenological metaphysical essence going on in your head. And so in the bedroom, what's interesting is for me, what I recognize, and I learned this through, it was a book I read, Dr. Lori Brado, uh, Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And it was really just about being intentional with using different affirmations and meditations. And what I came to realize was I need a little bit of ego and a little bit of authentic self to to faci- facilitate this arousal desire and ultimately surrender, right? And I think that's where ego comes into play for women in the bedroom is like there's this weird necessity for a balance of I need to be able to fully surrender so that I can really be in this moment the only way I can surrender in this moment is also utilize some sense of fantasy, right? Whereas men are more visually aroused. Women are sometimes more mentally aroused. And there's always going to be a story playing in my head about what I'm experiencing. Does that make sense? Totally. We need to understand our ego rather than Try. I think there's a lot of teaching out there that's like, ego is bad, get rid of it. It's just about integrating it and bringing it in and 
and utilizing it in a proper balance because, you know, and I'm not saying all women are like this. My husband has often expressed that he has to get a little mental too. And so I just think it's important that we're willing to acknowledge that sometimes I need a little bit of fantasy in this persona projection to facilitate this sexual unfolding. Um, but you also need to be able to fully surrender, right? Women need that safety and surrender. And it's like, how do you do both? But it's this practice of mindfulness and, and, and utilizing that story build in your head to help open up your, your present moment. Well, and you, you see, I was explaining to my wife this morning, you know, I'm, I'm noticing different trends emerging in terms of different philosophies and, in, in how relationships should be structured, built, um, developed. And you have, I mean, obviously there's, there's kind of the, this whole trad movement that people are, I, I don't know what to call them. Like there's, there's, there's the red pillars who, uh, you know, the Andrew Tate sort of mentality out there, which I I find is is podcast and I, yeah. And those guys are miserable. Yeah. Um, I can't, Ugh. I can't listen to them. No. In fact, like, so, you know, you know, Zuby. Yes. Right. He's, yeah. and, and so like Zuby, I, I think in many ways, um, speaks a lot of really good truth. I think he's, I think he's a good guy. Um, but then he goes on a podcast like that. And, and I, I can't, I can't help but say like, really, man, like you can't, you, you can't call them out, you know, and, and I've had other folks on, on, on Twitter say like, well, well, he's, you know, if he starts calling out everybody on every podcast, then he, he'll never be invited back. Well, if they're that fragile that you can't challenge Oh, Zuby, then... you can come on my podcast and call me out. I can handle it. Like, isn't that the well, kind of true, conversation right? you want to have? Don't you want a challenging, difficult conversation that makes you think? Exactly. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, you have the red pillars, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they've got their own. I, I think that's just the, they're going after low lying fruit in terms of men that are, that are broken, hurt, damaged in some way that they're all Agent Smith. A, a tribe. They're Agent yeah, Smith. For that's sure. what I call them all. I'm like, this is an Agent Smith. It's just another Agent well, Smith men- mentality. Yeah. They want, they want wife worship, not a partner. Um, and, but, but then you have what I call, I call them the trad cons. I don't know what they actually are. Traditional um, you, conservatives. Like they want a traditional, yeah. like biblical Christian type of marriage. Maybe. Maybe. maybe yeah. Like, that and that's, so you, you saw, you saw myself and, and Gia McCool got, get into it the other day, I think. Um, yeah. We, that's not the first run in. She's disappointing. Her. Yeah. I think, I think there's potential there. She's. Yeah. She could, I said it in one of my, my, my notes to her was your, your diagnosis is correct. Your treatment is awful. Um, like the, the, this whole idea that a woman should just step up her game and mm-hmm. submit. And this is your role. Like, I don't want my wife to worship me at all. I, I think that's, that would be a turnoff to be completely honest. I don't like who, any man worth the salt doesn't want that. Yeah. It, what have you earned by that? You haven't, I, I think if you, it's obligatory respect, then, right. It just becomes yeah. an obligation. It doesn't, yeah, it's not and, a desire. No, I, I've known, I've known people in relationships like that. Um, they're not terribly healthy at, at all. And, and you know, the, there's this one guy we used to, we used to hang with this couple uh, 
back around the time when I you know went through this discovery, and we we immediately distanced ourselves from them uh, because every conversation in a, at a kitchen party at somebody's house turned to sex every single time, right? And um, they just weren't they weren't healthy. They were always fighting. Um, but she would sit there and go, yeah, no, he gets his five minutes every night whenever he wants it, you know. And I thought that that sounds at, at the time it it even sounded, you know, I hadn't even kind of woke up yet, and it it didn't sound appetizing or fun at all. Like you, you want your wife to just be there, like she's she's gonna punch the clock. Like that's mm. not that's not a sustainable sex life. That's maybe a good band-aid for a while but that's not going to get you into a, a relationship that you're comfortable and happy and just you know like I, at this point yeah I, my wife and I are super it's just so comfortable you know yeah. we get in the bedroom and we kind of relax we're like ah oh, this is it all right you know it, and it's always different it's never the same I don't even know what I'm going to do and how I'm going to touch her till I'm literally doing it yeah she, that's she asks the best. Me, she, she'll say be spontaneous. Yeah, she'll say, she'll just, well, and it's, and that thing, I think people think, overthink it too much. And I did early on, right? I think it, yeah. it takes time to develop that. And I, and that's where I kind of stress patience to people as they, as they develop that. Just, I think the man has to lead and it's going to take a little bit of, like you said, you were talking about, about climax and orgasm and how that shouldn't be the goal. I had to reprogram myself um, to understand that. So early on, when we first began kind of this, this kind of new bedroom, this new life together, a new relationship, um, you know, there were lots of times where she didn't come and I'm like, like, and, and of course, you know, I'm eager and I'm trying to like impress and I'm, and yeah, I was, I was upset. Like I was kind of worried and she was worried that I was worried. And then next thing, you know, (laughs) so I I had to dial it back. And again, like I said, there's a bit of a poker face there, but for a little while I kind of had to convince her and convince myself look it's it's not important like mm-hmm. some days the vibe is just off right it's yeah. just it's not going to be our day for whatever reason maybe we're forcing it too much um and i and then eventually i got really good at that right just saying hey look you know what it didn't happen today that's cool let me just give you a back tickle i'll spoon you we'll go to sleep maybe we'll try again tomorrow or another day and then she could relax suddenly she started to really relax and then you know at this point now we, we almost can't miss but again, it's not the goal. Yeah. You know? um, it's just the byproduct, you know, the- right? It's, yeah. I, I can relate to that a lot, right? Especially this idea that, oh, he can have his five minutes. When I was exploring a more evangelical understanding and I was going to a Lutheran church and doing Bible studies, I got in my head that somehow sex was really just about my husband. And we had been struggling. Like, it wasn't all that great for me. And I remember one night, I was like, yeah, just go ahead. And he's like, what? And I'm like, just go ahead. And he's like, uh, no, thanks. And I'm like, what? And he's like, okay, well, if you're not going to be into this, I'm not going to just, no, no, thank you. And after that, I was kind of like, I was almost insulted and offended. I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And he's like, no, this is not what you're supposed to do. This is not what I want. You know, it was okay that he said that to me. I, I, Whenever my husband tells me anything, I don't assume he's coming from like a, bad, a, a place of bad intentions, right? And 
I think that's something we might forget in our relationships and why we get scared to talk about, especially our sex life is because we assume our partner is going to judge us or is coming from a place of ridicule or condemnation. But sometimes we have to be willing to say that really hard thing where he, he was like, I don't, I don't like the way we have sex. Like, I don't want this, this, this has to change. And I had to get over my offense of it and really be like open to it because he's not saying this to hurt me. He's saying this because he wants it to be better. And there's so much of a fixation on that. If you admit you're wrong or that you were to blame or that you're accountable somehow, that somehow that makes you weak and like unable to change. And I think that's the only way you can change change is once you're willing to acknowledge like what you're doing right now, right? Like I, I am being this person. I, I am in the wrong, but I don't want to be. And to want to be curious about evolving yourself as a person and learning from this and becoming like, I always think, don't you want to be a better lover? Like, fine. You think your game is good, but don't you want to be better anyway? Like, don't you want to keep exploring it and be curious about it? But again, this comes back to this idea that curiosity deficiency is going on probably from too much information and us sitting and listening to too many opinions and not, well, I already have all the answers. So why do I have to ask the questions? But I think that's what really leads us away from being able to have these real conversations with each other and really be accountable about like, is what I'm expecting to just be mechanical and shove it in good enough? Or do I want more from this, right? Like it's okay to want more from it. It doesn't mean that you're greedy or needy or a simp or I don't know what other negative words you would attribute to that, but. <laughs> I think everybody's become a guru overnight. Um, I, in fact, I'm, I'm tempted. Maybe I'll do this tomorrow or even later today is, is just a, uh, I'll tweet out a, a friendly reminder that nobody has it all figured out because yeah. I certainly don't. I think I'm, I know where I was and I know where I am now and I'm light years ahead of that place that I was in. Um, which I think puts me in a position where I can speak to my own experience and evolution. There may be things I don't know yet, and it's always evolving. Our sex life today is different than it was one year ago, which is different than it was three years ago, and vastly different than five. It's still evolving, and I'm kind of ex excited about what other frontiers we haven't yet discovered, because there might be more. I think with that whole the whole red pill thing just it, I find it both hilarious and sad at the same time. So uh, there's a uh, sorry, let me let me I'll come back to that in a second that you made a point about when you have conflict in the relationship and and how you deal with that, how he spoke to you and said, look, I, I, I don't really want to have sex like that. I'm, I'm that way now, too. I wasn't that way in the past. I would just mm -hmm. take any anything she would give me. I was like, you can't turn it down. Why would you? That's free sex. Like, just go for it. It's not it's not going to be sustainable. You're never going to that. You're you're almost going to set yourself back by taking that free that that free sex that day or whatever. It, it doesn't it doesn't really attachment theory teaches you that the the fight or the debate is kind of separate from you as, as people you're like my wife and I would, would argue over 2% versus homo milk. You know, why did you buy that milk? I, I don't know. I bought it because it was easier to go and just grab that one. The store didn't have it that we'd start fighting about it. And attachment theory will teach you to, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. 
this is where you're saying like it, you don't want to be the one in the wrong and and so for a while when we first started doing this i was the one um and again my wife will attest to this i was the one who would stop the discussion in its tracks and say hold up and you almost have to take a time out pause leave the conversation here step outside of it and go what are we fighting about this is dumb we're not actually fighting about milk nobody cares it's not that important but um there there must be more going on here and being the first to apologize now with the two of us she's way better at it than i am now so at first it was mostly me i would just stop the conversation and say you know what i, I want to give you a hug i'm sorry um now she does it probably more readily than i will so and what happens is the first one to apologize about a stupid fight um it, it's often is, is sort of by default the winner of the, of the of the battle because they're the one who who extended the the um the grace first so so you know for example there was a day about two weeks ago maybe three weeks ago now um we were out biking with the kids at night it's snowy and icy and the, i had yelled at my wife for not um waiting for the kids to cross the road before she crossed anyways a long stupid thing um and then i'm sitting out in the garage and i you know i usually get when i'm angry i'll just get quiet i just go quiet i don't really want to talk um i self-soothe well and i will come around and i'll give her a hug eventually and then she just brought me out some food didn't say a word put the food in front of me and then left even though she was pissed at me when you're mad but still care <laughs> I know. And I, and all of a sudden I went, boy, I feel like an asshole. I'm like, shit. okay, I'm going in and giving her a hug now. You know what I mean? And it, it was, we realized that the whole thing was silly, yeah. you know, and it just takes one person and it can be the same person for a little while. Like if it's always the same person and the other person is just abusive, well, maybe you have an issue with narcissism or something, but, mm -hmm. but often what will happen is if you start to extend that grace, the other person kind of goes, gee, I feel like a dick for constantly yeah. Um, I'm trying to keep this fight alive and you're trying to kill it, you know, right or wrong. And, and there is, and at the end of the day, we, we realize you make the fight, the enemy, yeah. it's a common enemy uh, of both of you. You kind of look at it and go, well, this isn't, we have, there's something somebody needs here. Um, and those are usually nights where we're like, okay, we're definitely going to connect tonight in some way. And it's actually, those nights often aren't really sexual either. It might just be a foot rub in a conversation. Yeah. No. That's really <laughs> awesome. No, I agree. Like, apologizing and admitting that you messed up just it's real it doesn't say anything about you other than like you care about the relationship and want to make it work right I always thought I never I remember this is kind of what hot jolted a transformation for me was I was all of a sudden being called out by a lot of people and they were all including my husband and they were all saying you've been really judgmental and you've been complaining a lot and it seems like you're always so angry and I, I was like, you know, fuck all these people. They don't know what they're talking about. They're clearly the issue. And my husband was like, mm, you know, mm, you sure? And he's like, I love you, but you know, is everything a complaint? Is everything a judgment? And I was like, wow. And he's like, what happened to being grateful? And so I went through this whole journey of like, why am I such an ungrateful brat? Like, what is going on with me? And it was just because I wasn't appreciating things enough, right? Like, if you don't have an attitude of gratitude, your attitude's going to be shit. Like, it just really is. If you can't be thankful for what you have, 
You're going to have this negative ass attitude. And I was grateful that my husband was willing to call me out for that because it made our relationship better and it made me a better person. Like I realized I'm being a real bitch. Like I'm a real bitch to be around. No wonder people don't want to be around me, you know? And as soon as I realized that everything is an upward trajectory from that, where you're able to go, yep, I have been, but I don't want to be. So I'm working towards not being that way anymore. And you have to implement, what am I grateful for? I have everything I want. My my needs are met more, right? We have an abundant life. We have love. We have our children. We have our health. Like start paying attention to things that I'm grateful that I have. Really, if I look back, everything that I have was something I wanted. And when you get what you want, you got to take care of it. And I think sometimes that consumeristic approach can really interrupt that gratitude mindset. We live in the society that's pressuring us to just consume and and have all this stuff and want more and want more and want more. And so we forget about, well, we already got everything we wanted and what are we doing with it? We're not even paying attention to it. Back to what I was saying, it's okay to admit that you were wrong and that you were fucking up and apologizing doesn't make you a lesser person. It makes you a stronger person because that makes you an accountable person, right? Because that's what accountability is. You, you acknowledge what you did wrong. I'm being a jackass. I don't want to be a jackass anymore. I'm sorry. I've been a jackass. I'm going to work on not being a jackass. That's a good thing to announce. You should, you should stand up and declare that with pride. You know, like I am willing to change, not no, I'm, I'm not an asshole and I'm not going to change. You know, it's because why it makes you wrong. What does wrong mean? Yeah. Well, that's why, that's why we used D-Day as a springboard for change because Mm. it gave, it gave like one of the things that came out of that, I think that shocked my wife was my own accountability in that. Now I don't own her affairs. What right. she did is on her. Um, and it, and so, so I think a lot of people really struggle with, with this distinguishing that they'll say, well, you're like, so, okay. So we talked uh, briefly in a, in a DM there uh, uh, about um, the Twitter tribe as, mm-hmm. as they call themselves. I don't even know that it exists in its previous form anymore. It's sort of fallen apart. Um, but there is a, there is a, um, a group of folks, all anons, largely anonymous. There's a few that aren't, but largely anonymous people on Twitter that that sit and talk about infidelity, mostly betrayed spouses and and an awful lot of women. Um, but there are a few um, unfaithfuls in there, and 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 so everyone would talk and share their stories and ideas and whatnot. Um, and I was kind of cast out in that group for some of my opinions on forgiveness. And my own accountability in what happens. So to give you a very specific example, um, and this, this was like within two or three weeks. So I was in the, like of, of D-Day, I was like in the throes of all the emotional roller coaster that you go through when you discover something of that magnitude. Um, obviously my wife knew what she had to work on, right? Like th- there were, there was no disputing it. You cheated on your spouse. Um, you have to be accountable. And she was. But where people didn't really understand me in that Twitter tribe is I'm saying, look inward a little bit. What could you have done different? I'm not saying you caused the affair, but you may have created the conditions for one, be it terrible boundaries, maybe your behavior. In my case, I had no boundaries. I would allow, I would almost welcome my buddies to flirt with my wife. 
in retrospect, I, I can't even believe I used to do that. I would talk about my wife in the hockey dressing room like she was a piece of meat. She was a good looking woman. And, you know, all the guys thought, hey, he's got a hot wife, you know, and I would chit chat about her and all the things we do. And I had terrible boundaries. If you look at our wedding picture, this brought me to tears for a long time. And I, I keep it saved on a, on my phone. It, at my wedding in Mexico back in, I think it was 2007, the moment I kissed the bride, I had a lot of my buddies were at the wedding. And the moment I kissed the bride, I gave the horns on her back to my buddies. Mm. And they're, all the wedding pictures from every angle missed that, except for one that my buddies got. And I look back at that picture you know, in the weeks after, because you're just diagnosing your whole past. You go back as far as the affairs went and beyond and try to understand, like, how the hell did this happen? And one of the things I realized is how immature was I? That whole, our wedding was, it was one of the most embarrassing things in terms of how I behaved. I got shit-faced with my buddies the entire time for a whole week in Mexico. I, I didn't focus on my wife at all. Again, giving the horns on her back was just one small piece, but I was completely gunned when I gave my speech uh, with my family there, my grandmother, all my buddies were there. It was really a frat party. I looked at that and said, well, no wonder I create, I didn't cause her to go out and cheat, but, uh, and and a different woman might not have, but I certainly created the conditions for an absolutely dead marriage. And, and I owned that piece and people on Twitter did not like hearing that. They didn't like hearing that. Hey, you know what? Maybe I have something to learn here too. And so I would kind of push that accountability onto people. And and ultimately, that's why I separated myself from that tribe, because there were a few people who I still talk to today on there that that really that resonated with a few. But I would say the vast majority were bitter and angry and, you know, didn't want to hear that. They just want to hear that cheaters are bad and they must be you know, banished to the wasteland. So, that, you know, that there's a reason I kind of stepped away from it. And then there was a lot of other stuff too in the last few and years. Yeah, that, that, that draws in a lot of hatred when you call the other partner to accountability for the infidelity. And I remember when my husband took accountability for, you know, his role, obviously in the relationship. And he didn't, he wasn't taking accountability for me having sex with someone else, but what he had recognized was, you're right, I do always leave you, right? Because he'd been in the military for a while. He was in the military before I met him. I wasn't asking him to leave, but I was struggling whenever he would go somewhere on assignment, leave the state, because that's when all the cheating happened. It was over you know, a span of two years, and it was when he'd leave, and I would feel abandoned. And even when we got married, right, he asked me, the night before we got married, have you ever cheated on me? And I was like, nope, lied to his face. And then- Nine months later, I cheated on him and then got pregnant. I, you know, and I told him immediately that I had cheated on him. And then, okay, now, now I'm pregnant. This, this all sucks. But then he was like, is that everything? Is that all of it? Is it just this dude? And so then I had to tell him about my past. And so then he said, once he had all the information, once I had shared everything with him, the first thing he realized that he had for me that he never had was trust. He had never had trust mm-hmm. for me before. It wasn't until I told him everything and was willing to lose everything that he started to trust me. And he said his fears about me cheating, I mean, they wavered here and there, but they were far less than they were before. But then he also recognized too, like, yeah, I did leave you. That was so not cool. What were you supposed to do? You had a need to meet and I wasn't meeting it for you. And we've talked about this 
you know, and podcasts. And we did a couple lives on it too. And the commentary, the feedback is atrocious, right? Even when we've talked about it with our family, with his parents, with my parents, people can't believe, how dare you blame Corey for this? Excuse me? He, he owned this part. How dare you? No, she's a bad person. And so it's like, I understand why people want to do that, but I have this approach of we are not just the bad things we do, right? Like it doesn't negate all the good things we've done. And everyone pressured my husband to divorce me, right? The, the people, in the, his, his buddies in the military, right? His family, his friends, everyone, everyone told me I deserve to be divorced. And he came with grace and everyone was like, she broke your wedding. wedding blah, blah, blah. No, no, she didn't. No, she didn't. I would be breaking them if I divorced her. I said for better or worse, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And it's already happened and I didn't die. And I still love her and I still want to be with her. The reason people can't handle that is because we've all been socialized to believe that if you fuck up, you're done. No more chances. And so that to me says, so you believe people can't change. You believe grace isn't a thing. And how many people are you going to be running from then? Because like we all fuck up, you know, and And what about when you fuck up? Do you want to be left or do you want to be forgiven? If we would just be willing to examine what we've been socialized and programmed to believe about infidelity, I don't think infidelity would always be the straw that breaks the camel's back of a relationship because you can come out from it and you can change from it. It's not once a cheater, always a cheater. If a person doesn't heal that fucking wound, they're always going to keep repeating the same mistakes. Right. Well, and, and yeah, that that Twitter tribe would follow. Um, there's a few people, Dr. Laura, Laura Madden and Chump Lady. If you've ever heard of Chump Lady, she's got quite a following or she she did at least for a period of time there. And she her, she actually wrote a book. I forget what it's called, but it's something like that. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Mm. Leave a leave a cheater, gain a life, something like that. And there's so many people that subscribe to that mentality. I looked at it and said, well, now, here's the thing is I discovered all this after many years of I went from, you know, I ran in high school and I didn't run for a lot of years. And then I went into competitive running in my early 30s and got really good really fast and, and changed as a person. And this the funny part is, is this all happened during uh, my wife had kind of started her affairs just as I began running. And so I went through this this evolution on my own while she was kind of going the other direction uh, downward, I was growing. But what I looked at, it was, I said, well, I'm not the same guy I used to be like, and and then of course D-Day and everything else has changed that too. Um, Now I'm even way different than I was two or three years ago. But the whole thing is, is you evolve, you change. People are absolutely capable of that. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to give her a chance. Now, I mean, the boundaries were extremely strict at first. I asked her to get rid of all her social media. I made I made some pretty harsh rules very early on because I needed to regain that trust. And like you said, every truth you tell about it, that's why I chose to ask so many questions. Every gory detail I asked. If there's a question you can think of, I guarantee you I asked it more than once. Mm-hmm. And But it was that that process of asking, receiving the, the truth, and then I gained trust from her, but what she gained from me was trust back in that I, she knew I wasn't going to react in a negative way. I wasn't going to shame her or pick on her in any way or tell her she was a horrible person for it. 
because what it's like it's like asking the dog to come and then smacking it it makes no sense yeah i'm not comparing women to dogs yeah so I get <laughs> don't say, but you understand the analogy yeah. it's completely counterproductive but in that process of discovery like your husband i said is this everything i want to know every and i asked her that question a million times in fact every so often i still do so are you sure there wasn't something you left out or any little yeah, detail? My husband that... comes back still too and asks me questions. Yeah, yeah. there's, and there, I don't think if it's asked in the right way and you've developed that trust, she doesn't take offense to it now. Mm-hmm. If I ask that question, I say, Hey, you know, like, what about this? It, the details I don't care about anymore. I've actually, I can honestly say from the bottom of my heart, I don't give a shit. I because of the and again that i think our evolution in the bedroom men men do have egos i have an ego in the bedroom i want to be the best that whole discovery in the bedroom and and the evolution we've had there that was important for me and i think she didn't realize how important that was either mm-hmm. i mean it sort of happened in parallel with all the the conversations we were having so by day we would sit and talk about infidelity by night we're trying new things in the bedroom and you're familiar with bonding i talk about it a little bit Adam Lane Smith talks about vasopressin and oxytocin and the importance yeah. of those hormones. Those and, love and that's hormones. Why I think, yeah. The bedroom, I think, is is such an important piece. And this is why I, 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 I'm such a big advocate of her night. Because, first of all, women, there's so much to discover. It's crazy. Not that there isn't about guys. I think there's lots to discover about guys, too. But uh, I don't call it the divine feminine or women have a, a, a upper limit of their sexual capability that men like I said, could only dream of. So in discovering that men are problem solvers, we bond through problem solving. Well, what better problem to solve than understanding your woman and her body and pleasure and all that in the, on the flip side, she's receiving that pleasure. She's, she's secreting oxytocin, which is making her bond to me. So that it's a mutual bonding experience. And I think Mm -hmm. that's super powerful. And, and that, to me, I think was a big part of it. I didn't learn that till more recently. Like that, I just and, sort of, yeah. I kind of went by feel. And they are, you know, those are the same hormones that are produced in children when they're playing too. And so really what it is, it's, it's obvious that when we play, we're more likely to release these hormones, which strengthens our bonds and then therefore encourages longevity in our relationship. In a simple way to say that is more sex equals more success, right? Because sex is that thing that continues to glue us closer together and understand each other better and, you know, work on this dynamic. Sex is literally the cure for everything in a, in a conflict. And I don't mean like if you have a problem, have sex, but I just emphasize the importance of sex. So many people are not having sex in their relationships. That's what attributes to so many problems is we can't be naked and unafraid with our partners. And then that's why we perpetuate all these conflicts. The the sex is for men, they need to be willing to open their minds up towards seeing it as something much larger than it is. It's not just the mechanical, physical. And I, I like your analogy of seeing as a problem to solve, but I think I would encourage it to just move out of that dynamic altogether and just let's learn how to play with each other in every way we can to the point where it's pleasurable, you know? It, it's probably because I'm an engineer. Okay, That's that what I sense. do. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm just as fickle Under, as my Under, as my husband's yeah. word choice too. I'm just like, I wouldn't say it that way, but yes. 
<laughs> under, under, yeah, under, understand it comes from a good place. I, yes, uh, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a problem solver. Yeah, it by by nature, it's just what I do. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think that whole that whole idea of of kind of bonding over something as 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 neat as that. Like I I looked at it and said, holy smokes, I have this huge blind spot, but I also have this huge opportunity. Like there is nothing but runway ahead of us here. Let's mm-hmm. see what we can learn and. I remember early on in the discovery period, we kind of, I remember what we first started trying some new things and, you know, we had this attitude. We used to say this um, again, I, I don't want to get into the, the the lifestyle stuff, but we would tell other people in the LS, like if we did that in the same room, we would laugh at each other like that because there was no ability to be vulnerable with each other or mm-hmm. open with each other. We weren't comfortable is really what it came down to with, with each other. There was no trust there. Yeah. Um, at this point, yeah. I mean, I can ask her to do something that's outside of her comfort zone and we'll have a conversation about it. Um, but there's no, there's no joking. There's no sarcasm. There's no, there's no shell to break through there, you know, where we, while well, we would laugh at each other. I mean, we still giggle in the bedroom and have fun, but, but it's kind of different. Like there, there's not, there's not a discomfort there in any way, shape or form. And, yeah. and what's funny, got to be careful how I say this because it come off the wrong way, but even with our children, that this whole attitude extends to them. My my eleven year old boy is um, he's already starting to ask some very vague questions about sex, and I I was telling my wife I'm like I, I actually I'm not even at all bothered Mm-mm. about that that day is coming it's coming very soon, um, and I I've talked to him and I said buddy if you got any questions like let's talk I'll I'll t- tell you what I know I'm not a pro but I can tell you what I know and um and he's comfortable asking and he knows that he's not going to be judged it it just extends down like you kind of once you've addressed that in one part of your life especially with your spouse I think it all starts there it cascades into everybody Um, that's that's true it's like an erotic spillover is the way that I see it is because as a as a coach I kind of teach erotic communication and and create this help other people understand a bigger idea of eroticism. And so that is like an erotic spillover and that this curiosity and this playing, this discovery just spreads out towards all of your intimate relationships. Right. And by intimate, I don't mean sexual. I just mean proximity and closeness. We have intimate relationships with our children, obviously, and it does spill over. And if your playfulness and your your trust with one another to be vulnerable in different conversations pours over to your children. That's good for them because then they get this spark of curiosity and they know that you're going to like nurture it and continue helping them cultivate it, which leads to, you know, more successful relationships. That's always one of the components that's missing is curiosity and creativity. And I agree with you. I we have a 13-year-old and twin 12-year-olds. And over the last That's few years, funny. and we have two older children too. They're 24 and 22. But yeah, because don't you have twins? I have twins as well. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I saw yeah. you tweet about that. And I was like, oh, we both have twins. That's awesome. And a boy and a girl, right? A boy, girl. Yeah. 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 I saw your tweet about you're seeing the differences and you're like, a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. And I'm like, yes. And that is the only way to say it. But And over the last couple of years, they've started asking questions and noticing things and observing 
you know, mommy and daddy are a little, a little excessively touchy. What's going on? Or it's kind of gross, but it's all in good fun. And they can ask us questions and we give them answers and then they're like, okay. And you know, this is the thing I, I know about my kids because I'm connected to the, all their devices. They don't look for sex on the internet. They have not searched for porn. They don't look at inappropriate stuff because we have an open environment for their curiosity where there's no shame or judgment for whatever question they ask us. And so I always think if you want to encourage your kids to stay away from all those awkward and perverse conversations and, and images, you have to be willing to talk to your children about whatever they're curious about. Because if you don't answer their questions, someone else will. And it's like, what kind of answers are they going to be given? And so I would rather have the silly, ridiculous, weird, awkward conversations than anybody else. I also homeschool too. So I have a little bit of a luxury there where they really don't have a lot of different sources. But I think that's really important to let that kind of eroticism spill over into your kids and be open and curious with them without feeling ashamed about it and and feeling like there's something wrong with talking to children about it because if they're your kids you, you want to i mean don't you want them to know they came from you right like and and all yep. of that so it's like we have to be their teachers and so that means that you know the the tough conversations <laughs> well i get yeah i think my my dad is a, a very he was a good man but emotionally immature. I mean, I, I'm a almost a carbon copy of him, except I had to learn a, a bunch of hard lessons. I don't think he ever, uh, ever learned. Yeah. Like he handed me a pamphlet. Like one day oh, wow. here, here's a pamphlet. You're like, I learned what? from, do you remember? I don't know. You're, you're American, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, and I don't know if this is a, a Canadian thing or not, but do you, do you ever remember Sue Johansson, the Sunday night sex show? I don't know if yes. that was a thing. In the US. Yes. I watched yeah. that with my mom. Yeah, she was wonderful. I was thinking mm-hmm. about her the other day. Um, and, and I mean, this is before the internet, right? So I, I, I mean, I sort of learned a lot from Sue. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, yeah, I got into university and that was right around the time university, you know, the internet was a thing. And, but I, I mean, I learned from a pamphlet and conversations with friends and, mm-hmm. you know, the odd playboy. Like there was, there was no, yeah. And now you've got, now you get the internet and you'd think that would actually make it better, but it's probably made it worse. But yeah, that's, I mean, where else were you going to learn? I learned from two books that I found in my parents' room. One was called The Joy of Sex. That was a wedding gift they had received. And the other was called The Sensuous Man, written by M. And that those were my introductions. My mom caught me reading it. I'm looking at these pictures, right? Cause they had some Kama Sutra pictures in there. And I'm like, what is this mom? I think I was four or five years old. I was really lucky. My parents were open with me. They'd be like, I'd, I'd find dirty playing cards, you know? And, what is that? Mom? What are they doing? This is sex. This is not love. This love is this and this and this. And this is what mommy and daddy do. This is sex. This is porn. This is ick. And so I was like, okay, this is love. This is sex. Got it. And I had parents that obliged every curiosity and, you know, had to laugh through a lot of them. But I'm sorry, a pamphlet. Oh, my goodness. But you know what? You're here now. You're here now. You know now. It took a while. I took a while. It only took 38 years to figure it out. Okay. uh, I still am figuring shit out. We just celebrated 15 years. 
We've been together 18. I, I think I'll figure some shit out over the next 15 years. Like, so there's no, hur- I don't just, let's not put a hurry on it. I think I love the, the journey and the exploration. So. Yeah. I've been told I should write a book by many friends and people I talk to. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe at some point, but it seems like everybody's writing a book. I, That's I just, what I think. If you wrote a book, I'd read it. Just saying. Well, yeah. And I think, I think where my, my perspective maybe differs from a lot of folks is, as like, I, I was a prime candidate to be a red pill bro, right? Like mm-hmm. I grew up playing hockey and lacrosse and, you know, just, I Rose can before shit <laughs> Yeah. I can shit talk like the best of them. I, I, I can play those games. I was that guy, just a mouthy asshole and realized I had to grow up. So I've still got that ability. I kind of like that I can go there if I need to, but I never do anymore, right? Why would I? It's pointless, but it's nice having that that bit of a background. So I think that's where- um, You speak their language. I I can speak the language. Yeah, I can speak bro if I have to. I do this at work too, right? Like I'm a very competent guy. I'm a go-to for a lot of questions. Um, I never make people feel uncomfortable asking questions at work. I always take the time to answer them. My whiteboard is constantly being chalk-talked all over as I teach guys things. But I think there's a real art in taking a complex idea and just distilling it down into a language that just everybody can understand. And I think if I was going to say I have one particular talent, that might be it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd also might just because I might be just because I, I don't really have the, the words in the background. So I, I'm not an academic in the traditional sense, but I'm not a stupid guy. I can figure things out and I often do it intuitively and then end up reading about it later and kind of filling in the gaps and the blanks. And that's where I like some of these books. Um, yeah. I, a, a really good book, if you haven't read, She Comes First by Ian Kerner. And, I have not read it, but I've heard of it and I've had it recommended to me many, many times. I went with a different, a similar version of that book, only it was written by Dr. Emily Nagoski and it's called Come As You Are. And I think okay. his came out around the same time. And I think he even attributes some of her work in that book. It's interesting when you read it. It's it's sort of a bro's guide, right? Mm-hmm. Once I read Women's Anatomy of Arousal, I went, okay, well, this is actually far more in-depth, way more detail. Like she gets into everything. Mm-hmm. But Ian Kerner's book kind of breaks it into two parts. The first half is ver- is all about the, the female psychology, the anatomy, um, how things are wired, why they're wired, the, mm-hmm. the ideas behind it, the, the theories on it. And then the second half is like physical techniques. He literally gets into do this, do this, put your tongue here, put your fingers mm-hmm. there. And throughout the first half, he keeps saying, don't jump to part two until you've read part one, because this is the important stuff. Now, of course, I had to jump to part two right away because I was like, oh, my God, I got to learn all these tricks. And and then I went back and re- re- reread part one. Now I look at it and I part two, I don't even know if there's anything. I've tried them all and I don't, I have my own things that I do. Nothing even resembles what he does. I've realized that the entire value of the book is in the first half. Yeah. You know, the techniques are just, that's just noise. Like you said, I mean, it's maybe a, it's they're a to be discovery. seen as suggestions, right? And then yes. always use your, your woman to really tell you whether or not that's a technique she approves of, right? Yeah. Like she'll tell well, you. Well, and every woman's different. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. If she, and and that's the thing. No, no two people are the same. So I mean, there's there's. It was a it was kind of nice at least to see something that I could go. Okay, maybe this will work. Yeah. And and some of it some of it had some success. Some didn't. But but the real value was in the first half. And I didn't know it. Re- I mean, I knew it at the time, but I didn't really take it too seriously. Now I'm actually considering going back and rereading that first half. Um, just because maybe there's something I missed because I'm in a different headspace than I was years ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just been, it's been kind of fun to, to learn all that. And, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know. I, 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 I did, there's a point I wanted to make earlier about red pill. Sorry. I'm totally jumping over. No now. worries. Um, we don't thing. have I, any I scripts here. We go anywhere. All this discussion from the, the trad cons and the red pills about men being leaders. And, and there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I think they take it way beyond. They think that leading means dominating and it's dominance and submission it's i'm right you're wrong it's uh, i speak you obey it's all these too far i look at it differently uh, i'm a canadian so um figure skating is big here you're you're from the northern u.s somewhere so i'm just minnesota yep. there you go so we know hockey and skating <laughs> we're yeah we're speaking the same language figure skating or like any dance right someone has to lead and mm-hmm. if you notice in all these dances, it's always the man who leads in all these sports, like in figure skating, ice dancing, any sort of a dance, salsa, you name it. There's the man leads. That doesn't mean he's more important or, or less important. They both are required for the dance. Take mm-hmm. one of them away. You don't have a dance. And they each have their own roles to play in that dance. Right. In fact, if you look at figure skating, the woman does the more complex trick. She's the one doing the flips and spins and getting thrown in the air and landing on one blade. And mm-hmm. you know, the man is more mechanical and structured and he guides and he does lead the dance. But I mean, without her, like she, she's, there's so much more skill on the female part um, in, in pairs figure skating. And I, I kind of, that's, a, I think an, an important analogy in terms of relationships. It's funny how we all watch these sports and go, that's completely normal. The man leads. And then you get into life and it's like, well, no, we can't, or we, if he leads, but he dominates, like it, it doesn't make any sense. Right. It's, it's, yeah. I think the whole bread pill thing, I think we can agree is, is just a reaction to feminism, but, and a really poor reaction. A it's very the opposite. Poor reaction, yeah. <laughs> very but poor. Uh, most folks have blind spots. They don't even realize I, I have them. I think everybody probably has them. So I wouldn't even say most, I think everyone has a blind spot somewhere. Definitely. Um, and so, we might, Correct one and pick up another one along the way. I, and, I, and, I, and I'm usually conscious of that with my kids, especially because I can be a little bit much at times with them. Like, All right. Well, okay. So technology is going to throw a temper tantrum. So maybe this is a good place to wrap. Absolutely. But I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your views and to reveal parts of your story anonymously, of course, people. And I would really like to have more conversations with you. So let's try and see if we can't work that in. I'm going to continue to follow you and see if anything stands out that I. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've sort of reengaged in Twitter in the last, well, Twitter X. I don't even know what you call it anymore. I'm old school. I'll call I'm it Twitter. I'm sticking with Twitter. It's funny. I, I was actually approached by a few fellas just in the last few days um, that want to kind of get, a, a, it's like a project they're kind of working on. Um, is one of these I, last a dolphin? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I just, yeah, I just I've got into an exchange with him the other day and asked him if he wanted to you be on my podcast. So do it. Uh, he said he was going to um, listen I'm, I'm, to you first and then let me know. Oh, well, this is yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> we'll, he's we'll interviewing both for... of us with this podcast, sir. <laughs> oh, I got to be careful then. Yeah. But, hey, can we re- can we just do a redo <laughs> back at the start? Um, they've got an interesting project they're working on, I think, uh, and it could go so many different directions. I think it's a cool idea, but they want to get ten guys. But 10 guys with maybe various backgrounds. I don't know the whole story about it, but it sounds like 10 guys with kind of different backgrounds that have sort of all arrived in the same place and in different ways and, and just try to help people um, open their minds up to kind of a new way of thinking. And, it, and it's not really a new way of thinking. I think it's just a really healthy way of thinking. But I, I think it's, it's kind of a, a neat thing that sort of just, just happened uh, in the last few days. And you know, maybe other opportunities come up, but yeah, I'm totally up for talking anytime. I don't really have, like I said, I don't have a background in this. Seems like you have experience and curiosity. So, I mean, that's all that I really require for a good conversation. So I will be sure to make mention your Twitter handle in the show notes, and then people can follow you for inspiration and motivation. Thank you again for this conversation. And I look forward to more inspirational tweets, sir. Right on. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll do my best and feel free to challenge. I'm I'm OK with that. I, oh, I I'm sure try. I will. I'm sure I will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can you can you can DM with my wife if you want to. She's quite open. To oh, yeah, like, all right, give me the real dirt on him. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> is he telling the truth? or is, yeah, is he full of shit or not? Because he says the right things, but is he really doing it? I want the goods. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Bye.